Acts chapter 2, 22 through 41. Hear the word of the Lord. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can be seated. We are a couple weeks into our series through the book of Acts. Last week, Josh preached on the coming of the Holy Spirit, and we, uh, the week before that, we considered the, um, the commission that Jesus gave to his disciples and the promise that the Spirit would come in power, and, um, and they were commissioned to go and take the news of what Jesus had done to the ends of the earth. We are starting to see that the church age has dawned, and we're seeing these beginnings of the early church. And when you look at these early chapters in Acts, it is remarkable how quickly the church spread. It's remarkable how quickly it spread. And we would do well to look back and, and learn from it, but it's not just Christians who look back and, at the early church and marvel. There are, are plenty of secular historians and scholars who, who look at that era of history and notice something odd is happening here. There was a group of Jews and, and Gentiles as well who ended up coming together in one body, worshiping this one man that they say died and rose again and ascended into heaven and is now the Lord of heaven and earth. 
And that news, that story spread all around the world at a rapid, rapid pace. Uh, Tim Keller quotes from this professor from Yale who, who notices this, this trend. He says, The more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying them all. It is clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy virtually unequaled in history. Nothing else could explain the surge of the early Christian movement. What caused this release of energy lies outside the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move. So, so this, this historian from Yale, he, he looks back and he's like, I, I, you know, I'm a historian. I look back at facts and, and all this, and I can't understand it makes no sense on paper why the Jesus movement spread the way that it spread. How do we explain the explosion of the early church? Because very quickly, you've got this small band of disciples, you know, maybe in total about 120 folks who are starting to follow Jesus, and then the Spirit comes, and then by the end of our passage today, we have 3,000 people who are now on board, who respond in faith in Jesus. And then by the end of chapter 2, we see in verse 47... And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Jesus dies, he rises from the dead, he ascends into heaven, he sends his disciples on a mission which, by the way, they must have taken seriously. And as they tell the story of Jesus, more and more people come to faith in Jesus. The church grew very simply because of course the spirit had come and it was the will of the lord and the spirit is moving and working of course but the church grew because the people took the commission jesus gave them seriously they just took him at his word they took the news the story of jesus and they shared it in our passage today we have essentially the first christian sermon and a lot of people make comments about this sermon about you know how short it is whatever you know, they talk about how it's five, ten-minute sermon, and so why would anyone think they should preach a longer sermon than Peter? Peter preaches this really short sermon, so, you know, everyone should preach short sermons. And, you know, here's what I would point out to them. If you go, if you go to verse 40, if you go to verse 40, uh, Luke says, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So before you start thinking this is a really short sermon, it could have been hours long, and Luke just got sick of it. He was like, you know, no, no, no. Okay, yeah, you said some really good stuff here, but I am not about to write down all the rest of this sermon. There were some points that weren't even that great. No, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Because, you know, Peter, he's, he's not like a trained uh, orator. He's not a trained, you know, theologian. He'd been with Jesus, and this is what he knew. He knew of what Jesus had done. So I guess Luke picked out about five to ten minutes worth of content and shared it here, which, by the way, um, if you want to teach in any capacity, you need to just know right now, you can prepare to preach for 30 to 40 minutes, but folks are probably going to pull five minutes of content from it and be like, yeah, this is, this is what I remember from that. Um, so hopefully this will be helpful. We're just going to look through Peter's sermon. And I just want, just from the very beginning, for you to consider, okay, this is the first sermon in the history of the church. The first sermon, really important, right? Um, why did Peter choose to say the things that he said? He's still sort of answering the question of, you know, hey, what's going on here with the, with the tongues and the fire and the, you know, the spirit coming down? What is happening? What's going on? And as we look at how the church spread and 3,000 people are going to be baptized in this, this single day, how do we explain it? And then if we apply it to ourselves, 
What will it take for us to see those who are far from Christ draw near to him? What will it take for our church to grow? And when we talk about church growth, you know, what we always, we're Baptists, we're real, whew, we don't, we don't, you know, like talk about stuff like that. So what we'll typically say is, you know, what will it take for our church to grow? Not just numerically, but spiritually. Well, we probably should reverse that, though, and say not just spiritually, but also numerically, because we're sharing the gospel with people, and they're believing in Jesus, and we're baptizing them, and they're joining our church. That's what we want to see. Or maybe I'm speaking for myself. I don't know. I don't know if you want to see it or not. I want to see it. I want to see people who don't know Jesus in Tupelo come to faith in Jesus because we're sharing the gospel, and then we get to baptize them. That's what I want to see. Um, how do we make that happen? I mean, there are lots of church growth books we could look to, lots of strategies we might could employ. I mean, hey, maybe we just, you know, try an attractional model. We just attract people to try to get them here, and then we, you know, share the gospel really clearly. They come to faith. They get baptized. What, you know, what is it? Why did the church explode? Why did it grow so quickly? Why did Peter choose to say what he said in this sermon? Well, in order for our church to grow, it will begin where it began for the early church with an unwavering and unified commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ that's where it begins a commitment not to a strategy not to a specific preference but to the gospel Peter tells the story of Jesus and 3,000 people were saved now we can't control there's a ladybug did you guys see that um, um, just dropped right there um, so Peter, of all the things he could have said in this initial moment when he's introducing Christianity to these folks, all he does is tell the story of Jesus. I, I said in our first service, uh, my biggest failures in evangelistic conversations with people who are curious about Christianity uh, in the past is somehow, somehow I would confuse the gospel with the benefits of the gospel. And I would end up in a conversation about Calvinism. Somehow, this person's asking me about Christianity, and I'm talking about, you know, uh, predestination. And I'm like, how, what was I thinking? Like, how did we get there? Uh, or even justification. What, what we tend to do is we tend to, like, create a barrier to the gospel by forgetting that the gospel itself is not, and it is distinguished from, the benefits of the gospel, the effects of the gospel. For instance, forgiveness of sins is not the gospel. Forgiveness of sins is a benefit of the gospel. Justification, that's a benefit of the gospel, but it's not, it's not the gospel itself. I think sometimes we, we, you know, put up barriers because we're not sure what the gospel actually is. Peter helps us here. He gives us the raw gospel. I want to encourage you, maybe jot down a couple more barriers What's another barrier for you when you think about sharing the gospel with someone? What keeps us? What keeps us from growing as a church when it comes to advancing the gospel in our city and in our world? We get confused, like I said, but another one might be that we, we just ignore the gospel. We ignore it. We get focused on other things. We don't, we don't think about it. Um, and, and then we, we could just simply, this is probably the most common, we keep the gospel to ourselves. That's the, that's the biggest barrier, <laughs> okay? I, I, you know, I don't promise very many things. I promise you, I promise. If you keep the gospel to yourself, you will not lead someone to Jesus. I promise. 
I know that for sure. If you do not talk about Jesus with someone, they're not going to believe in him from, from you because you're not talking about it. And, and that's a barrier. We tend to do that. We, we keep the gospel to ourselves. The gospel of Jesus is and must remain the driving force of our mission as a church. It must. It must be it must be informing everything that we do as a church, decisions that we make, how we live with one another as a church. It means that confession of sin, repentance, forgiveness, these are common things that happen. I mentioned in the first service also that, you know, some people may say that sin is a barrier. Sin is not a barrier. It's how we respond to sin that might end up being a barrier. We're going to sin against each other. That's, that's guaranteed. It's going to happen. If we respond to it in a way that's consistent with the gospel, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay, and it won't be a barrier, and it actually might be attractive to some people. Oh, you mean that if I fail in a massive way in this, in this community that you guys have, that I'm not just going to be ostracized? They're like, no, you're welcomed here. We will point you to Christ. You will be forgiven. The gospel is the driving force of every single thing that we do as a church. And so if, if, we want, if we want to see our church grow, I do, I want us to grow spiritually, then we're going to have to focus on the gospel. I want us to grow numerically because we're seeing people come to faith in Jesus. If we're going to do that, we have to do two things, okay? First, the church grows as we proclaim the gospel. We have to proclaim the gospel. So really just going to break down Peter's sermon to show you uh, how we can do that. And then second, the church will grow as we respond to the gospel. There's a very clear response here from the people who heard the gospel. And we're going to look at those two things so first the church will grow as we proclaim the gospel all right now I, I alluded to it a minute ago the gospel is not justification the gospel is not glorification the gospel is not sanctification those are benefits the gospel is not forgiveness Okay, the gospel is not, yes, a uh, common answer from folks about, hey, what is the gospel? The Bible? The Bible, that's it. No, no, no. The gospel is not the Bible. The gospel is very clear and very simple. Peter breaks it down very clearly. Here it is. The gospel is the news, according to Peter here, that Jesus lived, died, was raised from the dead, and exalted as Lord and King of heaven and earth. And that's it. That's the news. Because you remember, gospel, euangelion, it's news. It's good news. It's a declaration. So I can declare, you know, Kentucky, I can say their record. All right? I can, I can declare that's news. It's bad news, by the way. It's like five and eight, something like that. It's really bad news. All right? I haven't yet begun to speak about what that means, you know, because it definitely means something in Kentucky to be five and eight this, this late in the season, okay? Um, it means something. Uh, we're not yet talking about what the gospel means, like what, how it applies, uh, its benefits, uh, what we're to do with it, anything like that. But it may be helpful to you as you think about sharing the gospel with others to know how simple it is. We're the ones who complicate it. The gospel is the news that Jesus lived, died, was raised from the dead, and exalted as Lord of heaven and earth. You know how the early church grew so fast? They had a story to tell, and they told the story. That was it. So many of them were, had no clue what a lot of this meant. They knew, the, they knew the basics. They knew the simple fact that it was important that this happened. And they may only have realized that, oh, wow, this Jesus who lived in, in uh, my town, 
and who was crucified and who rose from the dead, he is the true king of Israel. And my sins can be forgiven if I believe in him. And that might have been all they knew about Christian theology, but it was enough. It was enough because this is the simple gospel. This is mere Christianity. This is Christianity in its basic form, most basic form. And it's important for us to know it because if we start convoluting it with other aspects of Christian theology, we may be training people to be good theologians but not actually inviting them to believe in Jesus. And that's what we're called to do. Okay, so that's the gospel. Let's look, let's look at each point that Peter breaks, how, how he breaks it down. First, Jesus lived. Okay, so the, the gospel is the news that Jesus lived. He says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So, a couple things. First, the people that Peter is talking to here, they knew Jesus. They saw him. They, at minimum, heard about him. But most of them saw Jesus. They were familiar. He was a, a really famous teacher who was going around, and he was performing a lot of miracles that were consistent with things that only God himself could do. And so the life of Jesus is good news for us because he was a man who performed the works of God, proving that he was more than just a man. Okay, only God can calm the seas and the storms and he and Jesus himself is the one a real flesh and blood human being who was performing all of these mighty works and wonders and signs. And so Peter begins by saying, hey, do you remember Jesus? That guy. He begins with the raw history of it. That guy over there, the guy who walked on water, the guy who fed thousands of people. That guy. Okay, just just so we're aware that's who we're talking about. And honestly, when you're sharing the gospel with someone here, it's, it's really not that bad of a place to start. When you start talking about someone who's interested in Christianity, there, you will be hard-pressed to find a person on planet Earth who denies that Jesus existed. Almost everyone accepts that Jesus existed as a person. And so if you're sharing the gospel with someone and you're talking with them, you can start with this. Hey, do you remember this? Have you heard the story about like some of the things that Jesus did? He walked on water. He calmed a storm. A lot of people around here are probably even familiar with some of this stuff. It's a great place to start and help people get started thinking about the fact that no mere man could do these things. And so that's where Peter starts. He's like, this Jesus was a mighty man of God. But he doesn't stop there because that's not the most important thing about Jesus these Jews needed to see. He moves on. Jesus didn't just live, but he died. He died. This is part of the gospel. Look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now that is a very interesting verse. At the same time, Peter is saying, you are responsible for the death of Jesus. And God willed the death of Jesus. God willed it. God planned it. And you are responsible for it. It's, it's a conundrum that we're, we're just simply not going to get into because it's not the point of this sermon. But the death of Jesus is good news. It's part of the gospel story because, first of all, it happened. Second of all, because through it, the sinful actions of men fit perfectly within the perfect plan of God. 
Jesus died at the hands of sinful men according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And, and we're, we're going to leave that there. But it's really important. Jesus died. That's part of the gospel. This real man was taken and put on trial and unfairly and unjustly crucified by sinful men. And I want you to notice, too, how Peter turns it on the crowd, this large crowd of people. And he says, you crucified Jesus. And that's startling to me. And it, it actually hit me a little bit yesterday when I read that. Because I was thinking to myself, okay, he's probably looking out there and thinking of specific people who were crying and calling for Jesus to be crucified. You know, because there were people who did that. They were, crucify him, crucify him. And it's like some of those folks were probably there. But I'm thinking in a crowd that big, there are probably people who weren't doing that. There are probably people there who had nothing to do with the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet he says to every single one of them, you crucified Jesus. And so then I, I just thought a little bit, and I was like, so did I. So did I. And so did you. We are responsible. We are culpable for the death of Jesus because of the purpose of Jesus' death. Jesus died not just according to the sinful actions of of these Jews and, and the Romans. He died according to the plan of God. And within the plan of God is Jesus' death for the forgiveness of sins. It's our sins that sent Jesus to the cross. We crucified Jesus because of our sins. That's only true because the death of Jesus is, yes, sinful in the sense that people shouldn't have done it, but fits perfectly within God's plan to save sinners like you and me had jesus not died we would have no hope of forgiveness and the church would mean nothing would not exist but if jesus only died then he'd, he'd be just like king david who died and was buried and we can point to his tomb but as peter says he is greater than king david because he not only died but he was raised from the dead when you share the gospel, you have to talk about Jesus' life. You have to talk about his death. But you are wasting your time if you don't talk about the resurrection. Okay, so look, look what we find here in verse 24. I love this language so much. God raised him up. It is so hopeful. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Just a quick word here. If it is not possible for Jesus to be held by death you as someone who is identifying with jesus through faith it is not possible for death to hold you either death cannot keep you one day you will be raised from the dead in the same way that jesus was you will take on a glorified and perfect body that will never again be corrupted or decay death will never be able to hold you because it was not able to hold Jesus. It was impossible. That impossibility is true for you as well. Just quickly, that's just, just deep hope that we have here. But the church grows as we proclaim this gospel, and, and in proclaiming it, we have to proclaim the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is good news, because through it, this new church age has dawned. Death has been defeated, the Spirit has come, and God's people now have a clear and new life. God raised him up. It was not possible for him to be held by death. And he, and he shares how David in the Psalms 
spoke of the resurrection it's so interesting because when you read these psalms you don't immediately think oh that is obviously about the resurrection of jesus but peter helps us out here so much he says in verse 25 for david says concerning him i saw the lord always before me for he is at my right hand that i may not be shaken therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced my flesh also will dwell in hope all right so just this statement of joy and hope in the lord but then he gives the reason for it verse 27 for you will not abandon my soul to hades or let your holy one see corruption let's just stop there peter helps us see okay well hold up hold up that can't be about david because david did see corruption and and david david is in the place of the dead and you know where his tomb is you can go and you can see it David, David's dead, and he was not raised from the dead. This is a promise that is reserved for a future son of David, a future king of Israel who will reign forever. He says here in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. I also love that he's able to interpret the Bible with such confidence. I, listen, I can't, I can't say that all the time. I can't be like, hey, I think this really points to Jesus very clearly. I can say it with confidence. Now, I can only say it with confidence because Peter's saying it with confidence here. He says that the patriarch David both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke. about the resurrection okay about the resurrection of the christ that he was not abandoned to hades nor did his flesh see corruption i love what he said follow him follow him We're, i'm just i'm just reading the sermon at this point this jesus god raised up and of that we all we all are witnesses okay we'll see if it keeps crackling um we all we all are witnesses thank you all right better better he says we all are witnesses so every single person there knew the story they had seen it with their own eyes but what does it all mean there's there's one more aspect here jesus lived he died he was raised from the dead what did it all mean this is what they're filling everybody in on he says here in, ver in verse 33 jesus isn't just raised from the dead but he is exalted as king of israel and all the earth being therefore exalted at the right hand of god and having received from the father the promise of the holy spirit he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing for david did not ascend into the heavens but he himself says the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies your footstool and here's the conclusion verse 36 let all the house of israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And this is where he lands, that this Jesus who lived and did wonderful things, died and then rose from the dead, has ascended into heaven and actually is the king of the whole world for which every single person has to give an answer. So what do we do with that? As you share this news, that's the news. And you see, it's really important to separate the response to the gospel from the gospel. It's so important. As you're sharing with someone, you share that news. How wonderful would it be just to have that pause and let them recognize 
There is something that has to happen. What am I supposed to do? Look at the response of the people who first heard this news. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And before we answer that question, you need to recognize that the gospel is only good news when the answer to that question is repent and believe. Because the answer to that question, what shall we do, could have been, there's nothing you can do. You are guilty. He is the king. You are the one who crucified him. You are culpable. You are responsible. And he is now the reigning king of heaven and earth. And there is just judgment to face. I'm sorry. This is the news. The king has come. And he is coming with vengeance. And that could have been the news. But it's good news to us. Because the response that we, the option that we have here is to be able to repent and believe. There are two responses, and as long as we as a church, internally and externally, as we're going with the gospel and as we're applying the gospel here, as long as we respond in this way constantly, we are going to keep growing. We will grow spiritually, we will grow numerically. And the first is conviction. There are two responses, conviction, and then there's repentance. They were convicted first. They were cut to the heart. It broke their heart that they had totally misunderstood Jesus. And maybe you're here today and you have misunderstood Jesus. You think you've understood him your whole life. But recently as you've been reading more and as the Spirit has been moving, you've been thinking, maybe I've gotten this whole thing wrong. And I actually don't trust this Jesus. There's good news for you. You can turn. You can repent. But the first is, they were cut to the heart. They realized that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher, but he was the sovereign Lord and the eternal God. Listen, we're in trouble the day we stop being convicted over our sin. That means that sin has taken over. The day that you stop feeling conviction over sin is a scary day. Because whatever that sin is, it has taken over your heart. And a church, it can happen in a church. When you stop being able to see sin or flaws or failures, and you no longer feel conviction, that's a bad place to be in. It is good to feel conviction. It is good for your heart to feel cut at the core because the second response is repentance. Here's Peter's answer to them. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see how he separates it? He begins with the story. That's, that's gospel proclamation. It's telling the story. And then after he tells the story, he says, Now this is what you need to do with it. You turn to this Jesus. You, you're walking in this direction you repent, which means you change directions and you follow in this direction now and you believe in Jesus, your sins will be forgiven. There's power in this story. There's power in this news that Jesus is now the reigning king who was raised from the dead. As a church, we will reflect Jesus in our community as we continue a pattern of life marked by repentance and faith. 
You don't just repent, believe, and be baptized, and then you're done with that. Repentance and faith is the life of a Christian. And so when others see us turning from sin and trusting Christ repetitively, others in this faith family, others in our city, they will see how people are supposed to respond to the gospel. And as you share the gospel with others, you need to make it known that no matter what their background is, no matter what their current sin struggle is, the moment that they turn from whatever they're following and start following Jesus, their sins will be forgiven. And isn't it good news that we have verse 39? The promise of forgiveness of sins, the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit is not just for the people of Israel. It's not just for this original crowd. It says it is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So parents, continue to share the gospel in your home. Continue to proclaim it. Continue to tell the story of Jesus because this promise of forgiveness of sins is not just for you, it is for your children. It is for their children. It is for anyone who will come, anyone who the Lord draws near. So as a church, here's how we'll wrap up. Listen, I promise, if you don't share the gospel, this is what I can say with confidence, if you don't share the gospel, you will not lead anybody to Jesus. But if you do, if you do, if you commit right now to take the story of Jesus, this simple story of his life, death, resurrection, and exaltation as king of the universe, you take that story and you share it, the Spirit will use that to change people's lives forever. The Spirit will use that to forgive sins. And the Spirit will use it to grow our church. So that's